Awesome. Thank you, Lisa. So Lisa Hogg is our ministry partner in Thailand. Uh, she was originally actually a Joe's Place kid uh, from years back uh, and is uh, now serving as a missionary in YWAM or with YWAM. Um, she had to leave Thailand back in March uh, and is now in Vancouver uh, waiting for Thailand to reopen. Um, because of the COVID situation, Thailand isn't accepting any long-term uh, visas at this time. So Lisa is spending her time brushing up on her Thai studies and getting ready. Her dream and her hope is to head back to Thailand and be able to share the good news, the message of Jesus Christ with the unreached people there. Uh, Thailand is actually 98% Buddhist. So uh, if you want to remember to pray for her as one of our partner missionaries, that would be much appreciated. And if you want to give to her mission, as many of you do, uh, just remember to mark your giving uh, with Lisa Hogg um, before you submit it. Thank you. Uh, so glad to have um, a bunch of you in the house uh, this morning. And um, ha, I got caught. Uh, when I was walking in, um, Sharon said, oh, Chris, I love your outfit. Is that a new shirt? Is, you know, oh, I, a pocket square. And I realized, oh, it's not a pocket square. It's my mask. However, I think Apple is reeling because they don't know what to do with this. That a, f- a face mask worth a few cents has become the most popular accessory. And I think, I think there's opportunities there. Uh, you know, pocket square as one. Another one, as I uh, getting to sing. Oh, wearing a face mask is a little awkward. My glasses are fogging up. But getting to sing, and I realized as I'm weeping as the words of the song are moving me, my face mask is collecting my tears. How handy. World of opportunities. World of opportunities with these face masks. Anyways, um, I'm excited. We're kicking off now into a brand new series uh, titled The Peter Perspective. And so over the next 11, 12 weeks, we're going to be looking at first and second Peter. And so I want to encourage you to follow along. Lisa uh, read our first portion of scripture that I'm really just going to be walking us through today. Um, I love the reality that the Bible speaks for itself. And so this morning, we're sticking very closely to our passage uh, and just doing a bit of a a walkthrough. But by way of a a primer question for you, do you think that it's possible for you to lose your salvation? Interesting question. I had this question um, with our intern, our tech intern this summer, uh, Carter Johnson. Him and I were spending time weekly getting together, talking about ministry. And one of the things I challenged him with, I said, hey, Carter, uh, while you have access to me, why don't you come up with six, seven of your toughest questions that you want to talk about with a pastor? And so one of this question this week was, can you lose your salvation? And interestingly enough, as we're prepping for First Peter. Our passage deals with that topic exactly. Maybe not so much the losing part, but the nature of salvation. And I realize, you know what, this is an important point that I think is worth mentioning before we jump into studying a fresh new book of the Bible, is to realize that sometimes we treat the Bible like that, that we have questions that we want answered. And so when we read the Bible, we read it in light of the questions that we have. It's really natural to do that. However, sometimes we can run into a danger area or a danger zone when we allow our questions to to sort of um, mold the text that we're reading or kind of we read into the scripture because of the questions that we're having. Does that make sense? And so I think this is a great opportunity. We're, We're launching into the Peter perspective. This is my challenge to you. My challenge is this. Start with a clean piece of paper. 
For the notes that you're going to take for this series, make them on a, on a fresh piece of paper. Don't, uh, I understand that you've got questions, you've got concerns, and those are great as they arise as we study the text. But let's not read it with a, with a, with a preset assumption or our own opinions. Let's let the text speak for itself. And so in that way, as we launch into this really amazing few verses of 1 Peter that we get to look at this morning, we can let what he's saying inform our thinking rather than the other way around. So here we are. We're going to jump, jump in uh, with verse 1, and we're starting right, just covering the basics here. Uh, in ancient literature, they always started with who was writing the letter. Uh, we do that differently. We, started, we put our names at the end, so if you get a multi-page document, you've got to peek at the end to see who's writing it. Not so in first century. They were straight up with you with who's writing it. And Peter just simply says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Clear, plain, and simple. Um, I always love if, you're, if you read broadly and you read other epistles, you'll find that Paul, who's written a lot of letters in the New Testament, he also introduces himself as an apostle. But uh, Paul has to, he always seems to tack on a bit of a, cave, a caveat because he wasn't one of the original 12. But the Lord still chose him. And so he's, he always has to, there's this nature where he's got to justify his standing as an apostle. Particularly to Jewish people because he was reaching out uh, to Gentiles. But Peter, we don't find that. Peter's just plain and simple. Then he moves on to who the letter is to. And here we have, we have God's elect, exile scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I couldn't help but think that these sort of sound for our college grads. Uh, This sounds sort of like frat houses, kind of a little bit, these locations. And, And in some ways, they kind of were. They were local churches that were growing up in these provinces, meeting in their home. They were tight net family like structure, much like what you'll probably find when you head off to college or university as they begin to open and you have different living arrangements. But what's interesting here is the, the twofold way that Peter addresses these believers. He uses the Old Testament word that is associated with Israel. He says, God's elect, even though his audience probably isn't Jewish. Interesting. God's elect, God's chosen one. Peter applies that terminology to Gentiles. Very fascinating. The next one is uh, the notion of being exiles. Now, sometimes when we read 1 Peter, there's this tendency to think of it as a, in, only in terms of spiritual exiles, right? And we can relate with that, that, that you and I as believers and lovers of God, here on earth we realize our future home is a home in heaven, and we're exiles here on earth, awaiting, awaiting for our real home, right? We're foreigners here. But we, we don't want to take that step in reading 1 Peter, There's actually enough evidence in the letter to suggest that the people that he's writing to are actually that. They're actually exiles. They're foreigners. And we want to keep that in mind. Um, Exiles and foreigners uh, living in a place that is not their original home, um, they would have been treated with a lot of suspicion, you know, like the wary eye or people that don't quite seem to fit into our culture or our context. And with that, they would have been used to sort of discrimination, marginalization, um, and suspicion. They would have been met with that. But the truth is, is that... um, Where am I here? That they weren't just... It's not just a spiritual exile, it's a physical exile. Think of it... um, 
Think of it like if you show up, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use soccer and football. Um, and yes, I realize, depending on where you're from, those are the same thing. But in Canadian terms, so imagine, who am I going to pick on, a soccer player or a football player? Pastor Steve loves soccer. I'll pick on the soccer player. So imagine the soccer player showing up for a football practice, okay? He's in his, smooth, his running shoes, his shorts, and that you know, cool Adidas shirt um, and with his soccer ball. And he shows up, and he shows up on a field where they're playing football, okay? 12-line, guys in pad, ready to play. You can imagine how the football players would look at the soccer playing going, are you serious? You're here to play with us? Okay right? And they'd just be looking to hit the latest smackdown. They'd be treating him with a lot of suspicion because he doesn't fit in that context. In the same way that a football player showing up on a soccer field would get obvious ridicule from soccer players, right? So think of that, that, that these exiles, um, they're not citizens, so they don't have the rights and privileges of Roman citizens, but they're not slaves. They're somewhere sort of in between. And they're used to being treated with suspicion. In many ways, the recipients of our letters already have two strikes against them. First strike, using baseball terminology now, is that they're, they're foreigners, right? They're treated with suspicion they don't fit in. Strike one. Strike two is that they've started following Jesus. They've heard the good news, and they've received it, and they're meeting with local churches, and their life is new. They've received the Holy Spirit, but here's the catch. Christianity is persecuted ruthlessly. This letter is written in and around probably the time of Emperor Nero, who was like, one of his trademarks was persecuting and getting rid of Christians. And this is where our believers find themselves. Strike two. Not only are they foreigners, but they're believers in Jesus, persecuted on each side. But how many of you know, those of you that love baseball, that Disney loves to write those endings or those moments in baseball where it's strike one, strike two, home run, right? Where all of a sudden it's the crack of the bat on the ball and the ball is gone and it's a home run. And it's a, a course and a reason for celebration. Well, in some ways, what we're looking at here in First Peter is this home run nature, the nature of salvation. And so we're going to look at through these verses um, sort of five different things all relating to salvation. And the first one here, uh, still as part of his greeting, Peter launches into the process of salvation. And so if you'll look with me in verse 2, here we go. We start with who. This who is referring to the elect, the recipients of this letter. He says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. You can't help but notice the very obvious Trinitarian structure of this process of salvation. Um, you have the Father, you have the Spirit, and you have the Son. The Father does the choosing in his foreknowledge that before the foundations of the world, he knew that they would exist. He knew that they would respond to the message of, of the gospel. Secondly, it sets it up with the working of the Spirit. This nature of how does this salvation come apart in our life? Well, it's, it's brought about by the working of the Spirit. The Spirit that wants to sanctify us, to challenge us, to put away a life of sin, and to pursue 
righteousness with Jesus. And then finally, this participation comes through faith in a new covenant. That's where the sprinkling of the blood part comes in there. It's referring to the new covenant that's in Jesus, where they needed lambs or animals to be slaughtered and their blood sprinkled on an altar to cover up sin. We have a new covenant in Jesus that sets us free from the bondage of sin and death. But we're saved into obedience to Jesus Christ. A curious phrase. I love, this is his opener to the letter. I'm like, wow, I feel like I need a week just to study this. But what I'm going to do is we're going to take those thoughts, this idea of the process, we're going to put it on simmer, like a good stew, and we're going to just leave it for a bit. And I'm hoping, provided I, I work well with the time that's been given me this morning, I'd like to circle back and come to that. So the next, here we go, we go verses 3 to 12. And I, I love to geek out on stuff like this. In our English translations, they break this out into like three or four sentences. You know, forming complete thoughts, making it rational, logical, so that we can follow it. In the Greek, not so. No. Oh, no. In the Greek, verses 3 through 12, it's all one sentence. Grammatically correct, working together, but it's all one thought. You know, if you were to interview my English teacher from high school, she would tell you that I was a run-on writer. I had lots of run-on sentences. In fact, one time I think I handed in an essay that I had a sentence that spanned two paragraphs. <laughs> How does that happen? I talked on and on and on and on. However, when I would start my run-on sentences, I would be quite surprised as to where they would go and totally astonished at where they ended up. <laughs> Translation, I had no idea what I was saying until I was saying it. We don't have to have that same sort of fear or concern with Peter here. Peter is writing well and eloquently, and the digressions that he makes as he moves through this passage of Scripture are very intentional, and they're very cohesive. They all fit together. And so we can trust him on this. He knows where he's going, and he's wanting to get the good stuff to us. Peter here knows where he's going and is quite focused on what he's saying with every digression he makes. Where he's going is this topic of salvation. This is the home run that they have in Christ. And so with that, we move on to the nature of salvation. So here we go. We're picking it up in verse 3. It begins with praise. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, I'm only doing the question three. So Peter begins with praise. He's got the most encouraging news that he wants to share with his readers, and he begins with praise, saying all glory, all honor to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we praise God? Why is Peter so excited? Well, here, let's move on. It says in and he's talking about God here. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. You have to appreciate something of Peter's journey here. From Peter, he would know what the opposite of living hope feels like. We do well to take consideration of who the author is here and what he's experienced. Remember Peter? called by Jesus to follow him, given a new name that means rock, leaps out of a boat to walk on water for a while, 
receiving salvation from Christ's hand. But we also remember a Peter who, when Jesus told him that I have to go to Jerusalem and I have to die, he rebukes Jesus. He rebukes Jesus and says, no, not on my watch, not going to happen. And Jesus rebukes him and says, sorry, Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God. This same Peter who had put so much hope into who Jesus was, the Messiah, though, the one that was going to liberate the Israel people. And yet the same Peter that when his Lord is captured and taken to be crucified, can't make the connection. And when he's questioned about knowing Jesus and being seen with Jesus, he denies it not once, not twice, but three times. Three strikes, you're out. It's that Peter. That Peter that after Jesus is dead and buried, he does what the only thing he knew how to do, which is to go back fishing. Disappointed, disillusioned, hope is dead. But we don't find a Peter speaking about a lost hope. We find a Peter speaking here in this passage about a living hope. He has every reason to celebrate because this Jesus, his Jesus didn't stay dead, but rose again. And with that new life extended that to the, to the apostles and to all that would embrace Jesus, they'd receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter is among those who've received the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's the reason he's praising. He goes on to say at the end of verse 3, um, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter connects this living hope with the resurrection of Jesus. Peter goes on to describe here in verse 4 the nature of this salvation. He says, um, and what a contrast here. He says, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The things we have in this world are temporary, don't you find? They're constantly perishing, constantly spoiling, and constantly fading. Did you know that I inherited a house one time? <laughs> True story. So when my mom passed away, there was this extra property that we had in Grenfell. Glorious, beautiful, luxurious Grenfell. And this house... Oh, it was a house. Two-story, beautiful. It had lot, like five different lots. It was a massive house. And, and it wasn't just me. It was actually my brother, Dean, uh, too, that my mom like, bequeathed this house to us uh, when she died. Lovely house. Everyone looks for it. Everyone thinks and fantasizes about getting an inheritance, right? Inheriting a house, that's, that's really great. However, this house had been acting as really a place of storage for the better part of a decade two decades, and was really only luxurious and glorious to the rats, the mice, the raccoons, and the skunks that live there. Just a horrible house. Just <laughs> nobody living in it. It just went downhill fast. And uh, last summer, uh, we had a local farmer help us out and uh, with his track hoe, just demolish this thing and haul it away and get rid of it. But that's the nature of our earthly inheritances, eh? Even if it had been a mansion, and I could have sold it and ended up with a bunch of, 
bunch of cash, what would have happened? I would have probably spent that cash on foolish things. And in the end, it would have spoiled, faded, or perished. But that's not the inheritance we're called into as Christians. Our living hope in Jesus is just that, a living one that has an inheritance in heaven that will never, ever fade. But what you gain in Christ through what he has purchased for you can never perish, spoil, or fade. Salvation is entering into something new rather than just being saved from something. Often we think of salvation as just salvation from our sins, freedom from our sins, and then we get a little bit disorientated or confused when we're going, well, I've received Christ and yet I still struggle with sin. I still mess up. I still fall. What's going on? And we, and we think that, well, I can't be saved. I, my salvation can't be legit if I continue to struggle with the very thing I was supposedly set free from. How does that work? But salvation is actually into something new, just as it is setting us free from sin. And I think that's what Peter is talking about here, is he wants us to have a vision of this new life. It's entering eternal life rather than just being saved from sins. I think, I don't know whether, whether this illustration will actually work. I probably should have ran this past somebody before, but I was thinking about when you, if you were like walking across the street and all of a sudden you hear like this 18-wheeler rumbling and you turn and you freeze and there's this massive loaded 18-wheeler with, you know, fertilizer headed, you know, and, it, and it's not stopping, it's reefing on the horn and you're frozen and this thing is barreling down on you. And then at the last possible second, a hero swoops in, sweeps you out of the way of danger and saves your life. Oh, man, you'd be grateful, right? You were, you were on the path to certain death, and yet you faced salvation. But what if you never moved past that moment? What if you constantly replayed that moment in your mind of facing salvation or being saved, but you just kept revisiting the fear of that truck, of it coming down, remembering it, and you actually got so bad that you couldn't go on with the rest of your life because you, you just kept looking back? And we would look at that and be like, man, that's, that's a shame. We need to help somebody who finds themselves in that situation because they're, they're living in the past and they're not embracing the life that they've been saved into. I wonder if it's similar here. It goes on here as the, as the verses carry on. It says, this inheritance, his digression here, is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's talking to us here about the nature of this salvation. Isn't it kind of neat that it, there's sort of this idea of storing up for later, that it's not now? We're not just waiting to, to receive salvation, but we're storing things up. Here he points out too that it's this faith in God that shields us with God's power. Until the coming, the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here it's interesting that our salvation isn't just like a saving from a truck as a one-time moment in, past, in the past, but it says salvation is yet to be fully realized. That it happened, it's happening, and it's still coming. Sort of this neat nuance to the notion of salvation. 
Um, the nature of salvation is that it gives glory to God, first and foremost. It is from first and last his doing. It is into this living hope, so which is the opposite of disappointment, because Jesus is alive. It is into an inher- uh, eternal, untouchable inheritance that is kept for us in heaven, shielded by God's power. A salvation that is already but not yet. A later to come nature to it, still yet to come. Salvation is begun by God and it is completed by God. So now we move on to verses 6 and 7. So he's talked to a bit about, to us about the process of salvation. He's talked to us about the nature of this salvation. And now Peter moves on to the application of salvation. In verse 6 we read, In all this you greatly rejoice. As in everything I've said before, as you reflect on it, you can't help but rejoice. Though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Interesting, God's saving is reason to rejoice. Not just a little, but greatly rejoice. I wonder that about us, that in receiving salvation, how is our rejoicer? Sometimes I think it gets broke or bent or malfunctions. Because as those who've received salvation, sometimes it's, so often it's not rejoicing that comes from our lips. At least not what we lead with. My wife's constantly encouraging me about that. That I come in and I'm like venting about my day or something that went wrong or whatever. And she's reminding me, so what good happened? Like what, like where's the positive here? I love that, that she does that. I wonder if Peter is describing them or instructing them with this sentence. I wonder if he's met them and he knows that they're the kind of people to just greatly rejoice or if it's sort of coming across as a bit of an instruction. You should be those who greatly rejoice. It's Peter. He's setting the example. He began the letter with rejoicing and now he's encouraging them in lieu of salvation in light of it, we too should be those who rejoice. This run-on sentence is getting good, is it not? It's great. We move on. So the application of salvation here, in verse 7, it says, these, so speaking about these trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's digressing here to have a bit of a pastoral moment with them. And you have to appreciate where he goes because I think what Peter is saying here, he's saying, measure your circumstances against your salvation. Allow it to refine your faith rather than measuring your salvation against your circumstances. I find in my own life, I find I hold salvation too loosely. Right? I let circumstances arise or difficult situations arise and sometimes my first question is to God like why is this happening? Why would you allow this? And I question him because it's a tough circumstance. But the picture that Peter is painting of salvation here is that it's the absolute. It's the real deal. We should instead be comparing our circumstances in light of our salvation rather than the other way around. Where is your hope really? 
Is it just in your hope that circumstances will work out for you? In that case, I think we're going to be sorely disappointed often. But if your hope, your living hope, is in Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter what your circumstances present you with. Peter is saying that this becomes an opportunity to refine your faith, to strengthen it. And this should be precious to us. This should be a process that all Christians understand and respect. That I can embrace Christ and receive salvation, but that doesn't mean that everything is going to go hunky-dory. And Peter understands this, a man who was martyred for his faith, crucified on a cross. Do you know what? Paul ended up getting beheaded by Nero, but he was beheaded, not crucified, because he was a Roman citizen, and that was a privilege that allotted to him. Peter, not a Roman citizen, is crucified, and yet Peter says, I'm not worthy to hang on a cross the same way that Jesus did. And his cross was turned upside down. So tradition tells us. But Peter understood this, that we need to measure our circumstances against our salvation, not the other way around. He goes on here. He speaks again of an inherent... Oh, I better move on to the right page or we're going to be in an endless loop, which would be horrible. Mental note, don't double-side your pages. Here we go. Next, we move on to verses 8 and 9, where he's talking about the experience of salvation. And I was struck with these verses of how directly applicable they are to us as well. Here we go in verse 8. It says, Though you have not seen him... You love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. I wonder if I'm curious to know what it was like for those apostles who were eyewitnesses to Jesus. And that as they got to spread the message to Jesus about people who'd never seen him, that they see them put their faith in Jesus and be filled with the Spirit. I just wonder what that must have been like. We're in the same boat. Our physical eyes, we don't get to hang out physically with Jesus. And yet, our hearts are filled with love for him. We don't see him, and yet, belief is is rich and strong in our hearts. It kind of reminds me of the story of Thomas. You remember Doubting Thomas, an eyewitness? where after the resurrection, he wouldn't believe that Jesus had actually raised from the dead. He said, unless I see him and touch the scars, I I won't believe. Thomas was a classic seeing-is-believing kind of guy. He had to see it in order to believe it. And yet, what Peter is telling us here, it's a gem. He's saying, it doesn't work like that. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is is seeing. You get belief right first, and you'll see clearly then. Amazing. Lucky for Thomas, Jesus shows up. We read it in John 20, verse 29, and this is what Jesus says. Jesus told him, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 
Do you know Jesus spoke a specific blessing for all those who wouldn't see him and yet put their faith in him? And I mean, we're blessed. God the Father would never deny Jesus his request. We have it, and we have an assurance of it. You see, Jesus promotes a different approach to life. He says that believing is seeing. That we trust and believe in Jesus, our eyes are finally open to see clearly. And what a blessing this is. But there's more. And here Peter goes on to say at the end of verse 8, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Part of the blessing of the experience of salvation is an inexpressible and glorious joy. Something we feel deep down, deep inside of us. It's this taste of eternal life. Peter even links this experience, which I think it's a key one to salvation. He, re- he links it in verse 9. Get this. He says, For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He links that inexpressible and glorious joy that we encounter inside of us as sort of inaugural of this amazing salvation that is yet to come, the saving of our very souls. We don't have to wait till heaven to experience that. As Christians, we have the luxury, the privilege, the blessing of experiencing that now. The ongoing experience of salvation is one of faith. We never graduate past that. But this faith that we exercise and allow to be refined day after day, it pays rich dividends in glory and inexpressible joy. In getting close to wrapping up here, um, The last section, it'll move a lot quicker. Uh, Here, Peter takes us in verses 10 and 12, where he's talking about the privilege of salvation. It's his final digression in this marathon sentence that we've been hanging out in. Here we are, verse 10. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of a grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. So he's talking about the Old Testament prophets trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of things that have now been told to them by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And he ends it with, even angels long to look into these things. Here Peter is speaking about the privilege it is for us to live on this side of salvation history. Comparing us to the prophets of old, saying, hey, even these guys, even though they looked intently and searched intently for it, they realized they weren't going to get to see it. Interesting how on both sides of the cross, there's this nature of seeing and believing, believing is seeing. And the Old Testament prophets realized that Jesus was to come and they wouldn't get to see it. So they were serving us in the things that they recorded. But what they were looking for was to be fulfilled in Jesus 
And it goes forward now in the preaching of the good news about Jesus Christ. He mentions here this notion about angels. I think we have to be a little bit careful. I don't think he's saying this uh, in order to invite speculation on our part about what angels do. I think uh, the goal of this statement is to let us know the privilege we have to be witnesses of, to this salvation. That we have this opportunity to put our belief, our faith in the resurrected Christ and to so experience a living hope. Remember that thing we put on Simmer? Let's come back to it. As we wrap up our time together this morning, I'd like to return to where I left um, with this idea of the process of salvation. It would be a massive disservice to this passage of Scripture to not give an opportunity for us to respond. If you'll remember the process that Peter describes at the beginning of the letter, um, I'd ask you this question. Where are you in this process? At first, he says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, there might be those that are disregard God, want nothing to do with him, don't believe that he exists, won't even acknowledge it. But there are those, I think, that in the process of our saving, we begin to acknowledge that, hey, there is a God who's created this whole world and who loves me, who is great in his foreknowledge, great in his sovereignty, that I'm not a random, I'm not a random occurrence or an accident, but that my very life has been predetermined by an eternal being, God the Father. Maybe you're there. Maybe that's where your faith journey begins, is recognizing that, that God exists, that he loves you, that he has chosen you. And maybe you can even admit that you sense God at work in your life where you recognize that things don't just happen by coincidence. There seems like there's something specific to it. Like I had this thought, and then that day I met someone who told me a story that just related exactly to that thought that deeply encouraged me or blessed me. And here it's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Peter is talking about this working of God in our lives through his Spirit that's always happening, whether we're aware of it or not. But it's an important part in the process of salvation is to recognize that God wants to be specifically at work in your life right where you're at. Because he loves you. And we're asking why. What is all this for? And I think we come to the crux of it here. That as his working draws us, as his working acts as an invitation to turn our thoughts towards him, to acknowledge him, to research, to look into it, he makes us aware of his presence. And all of this has been an invitation for you to experience salvation in this one final step. Peter leads us to this phrase, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. To put your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. 
And I'd like to encourage you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a prayer and I'd like to invite you that maybe, maybe you've never responded. Maybe you're like, oh, I do. I believe that there's a God. I believe that he's out there and that he's sovereign. He has to be. The, the evidence in creation is overwhelming. And maybe you can even identify, yeah, I, I understand that there has been this spiritual side, this God's spirit working in my life, working all things to good, drawing me, drawing my attention towards him. But maybe you've never come to making a decision for Christ. Peter says that this is the goal of salvation for us, is that we would be obedient to Jesus, that we would embrace him. Even in the Old Testament passage where he's talking about the prophets, did you catch that where he says the spirit of Christ in them? Jesus wasn't just a great teacher for Peter. He was God. It was the very spirit of Christ that he recognized as the living spirit of God. I'd like to invite you, actually invite all of us to respond with a prayer this morning. But if you've never given your heart or given your life to Jesus, this could be the prayer that changes it for you. That this day you say, I'm putting my faith in who Jesus is. And for the rest of us, we pray this prayer, well, with the refrain of rejoicing that Peter talks about because of the salvation that he's given to us. So would you please pray this with me? Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to encourage you that if you prayed that prayer for the first time, salvation awaits you. It's the beginning and we'd love to hear about it. So we'd hope that you would get in touch with us uh, at the office here and let us know or tell somebody, tell a believer. The rest of you, thank you so much for joining uh, us this morning um, and God bless your week.